Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Audible has hundreds of thousands of titles available in every genre imaginable. And right now, you can get a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out in the traditional manner. Get a free audiobook on the podcast, audibletrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somehow getting through to you. This is probably not being listened to by the National Security Agency. Hello. Have I already said that one? The National Security Agency? I'm now feeling like I just said that recently. Uh, So anyway, uh, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in, Uh, especially if you're at the National Security Agency. I appreciate you being here. My guest today is William Giraldi. Uh, He's sometimes... Uh, he is a sometimes controversial literary critic and uh, the author of a new novel called Hold the Dark, which is available now from Liverite Press. I'm going to be talking to uh, Mr. Giraldi in just a second. Uh, today is uh, November 23rd, 2014. That's the, uh, the day when this episode officially rolls out into the world, uh, which means that we're coming, uh, we're coming up against Thanksgiving. The holidays are upon us officially. Uh, if you're in transit or you will be in transit soon uh, for the Thanksgiving uh, break, be sure to take some episodes with you. Download a few uh, other people episodes in case you get stuck in the airport. Not a bad idea. Uh, best of all, or better yet, or here's the best idea I've ever had in my life. Get the free other people app. This show has its own app. It's free. Get that app on your device, whether it's an iPhone or an Android device, before you leave town. And then you can uh, you can download episodes to listen to offline. If you're in an airplane, if you're in a train, if you're in an automobile, or all of the above, uh, you can have me with you, (laughs) which uh, I know is a comforting thought. I also want to make a quick holiday gift idea plug, because uh, I'll do that. I'll join this capitalist orgy. 
Uh, if you are getting into the holiday season, you have a book nerd in your life, somebody who writes, somebody who reads, somebody who likes such things, consider getting them a premium subscription to this podcast. That gives you access to everything. It's also cheap, 75 cents a month for a year of access. How's that? They get the app. The app is free. You get them a premium subscription. Boom. Or you just give them $13, <laughs> whatever it costs. It's very affordable. Uh, the other gift idea, a subscription to the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. That's over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Thenervousbreakdown.com is my online uh, literary community slash website. It has its own book club. Many of you know that. Uh, for nine ninety nine a month, you get an, uh, a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. You get that gift for somebody special in your life. They get a new book delivered to their door every month for a full year. 12 books at least. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Both of these gifts keep on giving. Just saying. So, just making a plug. I hope you guys uh, will keep that in mind. Uh, the show needs your support. The Nervous Breakdown uh, could use your support to keep things rolling. And uh, you guys have always been great that way. I hope it continues this year. And uh, I, I hope that, uh, you know, reminding you about it isn't too annoying. I know this shit gets annoying. I hate asking for people's support, but uh, I need it. I put a lot of work into this stuff. And I feel like, uh, you know, the premium subscription, the book club, good value. Something to offer. So uh, with that in mind, holidays... They're here. I'm trying to have a good attitude this year. I got a shift. I have a kid. I can't be dark. I can be a little dark, but I can't be overly dark. I don't want to get cynical to the point where uh, I'm bringing people down. My daughter likes the holidays. She gets excited about Santa Claus. I got to give her space to do that. I got to be able to participate in that fun a little bit. It is amazing though how fast retail America shifts into a holiday overdrive. The speed with which that happens is alarming. Day after Halloween. That's how it is out here. The music. Sweet Christ. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like Christmas, like holiday music is similar to uh, the sound of uh, uh, slot machines in a casino. It has a similar effect with me. Like at first it's like, ah, oh, fun, you know, and then give it a few hours, give it a few days and it starts to slowly grind you down. It slowly wears away at your sanity. So I'll be around, uh, in Southern California for uh, Thanksgiving. I'm also going to be uh, in town for Christmas. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not dealing with airports. I can't do it. Who wants to do that? I know people have to. They got to go see family. But my God. Like rule of thumb. When everyone is headed to the airport, don't go to the airport. It's a fucking nightmare. And this snow. I mean, you know. I've been seeing this footage of Buffalo. Like 11 feet of snow or some shit. That's crazy. No thanks. Can't deal. I don't mean to sound like a baby. I'm just saying. Get me to January. I realize this is fun. Some people like Thanksgiving. They like it. 
I'm just like, why are we all so lazy? This is boring. What are we doing? This football game sucks. I'm bloated. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is William Giraldi. His novel is called Hold the Dark. It's uh, generating incredible uh, critical acclaim right now. The reviews have been excellent. It's available from Live Right Press, and I hope you guys enjoy hearing from him. We had a good talk. We get into some stuff. We cover some ground. Uh, here he is, folks. This is William Giraldi. And his novel, once again, is called Hold the Dark. I am in my office uh, on the campus of Boston University. And this is a brand new building. And so this office smells brand new. It has that new car smell. And what's great about this is I've got these giant windows here on, on the fourth floor. And you'll never believe what is right outside my window. It's Fenway Park. Oh, my so God. So I can see... I can see all of Fenway Park from from this window, and that would be extraordinary if only I gave a damn about the Red Sox. <laughs> so wait, you can see the actual field? I can I can see it, uh, not the field, but I can see everything else. I can see the high walls. Fenway Park is actually green, and and the what I'm looking at now is the the big sign where the TV screen is and the big Fenway Park welcome sign that has the World Series championship sign on it and and of course the those red socks hanging there dangling but you don't give, uh, but you don't give a shit you don't care about baseball at all or you about. know <laughs> does that sounds that sounds like sacrilege doesn't it well i mean it's i just like the thing about it here's the thing like i don't pay that much attention to baseball but i do have some sort of like weird embedded nostalgia for it like yeah that goes back to my boyhood and just i think it has something to do with like my sense of america uh right not that i'm so you know but i, I guess i'm a little nostalgic <laughs> uh, but when it comes to the red Sox in particular in fenway park like fenway park is cool and i the one time I've spent time in Boston, I actually made a point to go there. It was not in season, so I couldn't see a game, but I like went and like stood outside of it. <laughs> well, you know, you're not alone with that. We get people here every day uh, for that same nostalgia that you, that you speak of. And you know, I'm a Jersey guy, Brad. I mean, I if there was ever a, a baseball team in my life, they, it was of course the the Yankees. But it, it, ne- never was I a, a sports guy. I think I tried to play basketball when I was a child. But I'm five foot 
six. So that, that wasn't going to work. And I don't know why my father didn't discourage me from that. My father wanted me to be a wrestler because he himself was a championship wrestler in, in college. And he, was, he was very good, and he was a wrestling coach. But he, he never pushed that very hard, and I was never interested. I, I, just about the time I wanted to roll around on the floor with, with girls, he wanted me to roll around <laughs> on the floor with boys. And um, I, it, it didn't seem to fit. So I did play a little bit of baseball, though. It, it, not, but, I, but I was terrible. Yeah. I was terrible. I, I just uh, remember. I remember growing up, like in junior high, my uh, gym class. We had like we always had like a wrestling unit or whatever where we had to wrestle, and I fucking hated it. It was <laughs> a a it was exhausting, but b it was like like literally there would be the whole class standing there, and the coach who was sort of a sadist would bring out two students and like everyone would stand around and like cheer and watch you wrestle. Oh, it's humiliating. Yeah. It's awful. And and, like, it's uniquely exhausting. Like I do say for people who, you know, are into it and compete, like you have to be in shape to wrestle sort of like you have to be in really good shape to box. Like it takes it out of you. It really, it really does. And I just, I just never was. Uh, where did you grow up by the way? Uh, in the Midwest. So in the Midwest. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something about myself that, Perhaps some people know. I, I I wrote an essay about this once for for the Kenyan Review, and and I I, I was reluctant to write the essay uh, about this portion of my life, and then I was reluctant to publish the essay. And I said, well, maybe no one will see it, but you know, they I think they paid me five hundred dollars at the time, and I I said, oh well, that, that's good. I need that money. Uh, but then it won this prize, this pushcart prize, and it was reprinted uh, in this annual anthology of of award winning essays and stories or. Uh, and poems too, I believe, are in it, and and so it got a bunch of attention. <clears throat> and it's about um, my years as an amateur bodybuilder. And when I was living in New Jersey, from the ages of all of my 18th year and all of my 19th year, I was on a bodybuilding stage. And um, this is humiliating, is it not? <laughs> I don't know, man. It sounds kind of uh, cool. I mean, were you uh, were you juicing, or was this all natural? No, I, I I took as many drugs as I could take, and I needed to because uh, I was I was small and I was a skinny kid. I was a I mean I was a reader my my whole life. I was never uh, into sports, and I was never into um, the whole masculinity ethos of my family. I mean, my only idea of masculinity came from this this very uh, staunchly masculine family of of Italian-American carpenters, um, very manly men, all of them. My father, my grandfather, my uncles. These are guys who are very tough and were you like, motor- Do you think you were like kind of rebelling against? I mean, that's got to be to be uh, interested in literature. is kind of a rebellion. And then the bodybuilding thing was maybe like one f- last flailing attempt. <laughs> to, to well, it was... It- Yes, exactly. Well, to win the esteem of the father, I mean, it's just as just about as Freudian as one can get. And I had been steeped in Homer and and a lot of the the Greek classics when I was uh, ten, eleven, twelve years old. And I think my father thought that there was something wrong with this. And what did he do? He was a carpenter. Yeah, my dad was a builder. He was a carpenter, and he also. When I got to be in my teens, he was also a wrestling coach. Um, I also should say that I come from a town called Manville, 
<laughs> wow. And this, this is true. Yeah. This is true. My, my town in central Jersey is called Manville. And so, so imagine this for a second, Brad. I'm growing up in a town called Manville in a very gaudy, masculine state of New Jersey. I mean, look at our governor, Chris Christie. Right. And he's such a dick like about everything. <laughs> I wish he would. Yeah, I wish he would stop. I wish he would stop because I, that's what people that's what people see yeah. of us. That that in Jersey Shore. And I should say that the people on Jersey Shore were actually from Long Island and Staten Island. So that that is something that um, critical doesn't dis- often it's get. a critical distinction, <laughs> a critical, a critical distinction. So I'm growing up in this family of very masculine guys. And I'm a reader, and um, I think that they had thought I was homosexual because I was a reader. And you have to understand that in this provincial town, this reading was equated with being gay. Can you imagine? Wow. Uh, so I think that I probably was bothered by that to, to some degree, although now when I'm mistaken for gay, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. Uh, and, and of course, it means, I, it means you're dressing well. <laughs> it means I'm dressing well, exactly. <laughs> and it means I'm I'm also sensitive, and um, uh, and I don't mind it. Uh, I, I wish it would happen more often. But when I turned to 15 years old, I I was I was let go by a girlfriend, my first girlfriend. She she just, I mean, to say that she broke my heart is is a little bit of an understatement. I mean, she really chewed it. She really chewed it and spat it out, and I was absolutely beside myself with grief. I, I just did not know what, what to do. I mean, I'm, I'm 15 years old. I think I'm going to marry this girl, right? <laughs> and so one day, I, in this small town, we all lived very close to one another, and, and I didn't have a mother when I was growing up, and so I, my grandmother raised me and, and my brother and my sister. What happened, and to, what happened to your mother? My mother left our family for... Uh, for another man, actually, she uh, left my father and left us and, and moved to New York City. Uh, New York City was about 45 minutes away from us, about 45 minutes north of us. And my mother met um, a very wealthy man, um, an Egyptian Jew from um, from New York. And this was this was uh, uh, an absolute mystery to us because we didn't. In, in, a, in a very small town of, of Poles and and uh, Italians, all of whom are Catholic, uh, we, we didn't know what an Egyptian was. We hardly knew what a Jew was. And uh, for my mother to meet uh, this this man and, and leave our family, it was a real cataclysm. It, it sent a, a real um, uh, crevice through through our family, and it destroyed my father. And How old were you? I was about 10. Oh. I was about... I was about nine or ten, and she and she fully bailed. Like she didn't want custody. She just took off. No, no, she just took off. She didn't want custody. In fact, that's the last thing she wanted. She didn't. She didn't want to be married, and she didn't want to have kids anymore. And this this absolutely destroyed my father emotionally, and it also destroyed him financially because not only did she she leave, but she demanded um, half of his assets, and my father couldn't couldn't. Um, in order for my father to give her half of his worth, he would have had to sell the house, but that was our house, and that's where we lived, and my father didn't want to do that. And so we borrowed all of this money uh, from from different uh, banks and different places in order to pay my mom. And he had spent years and years after that tr- struggling to pay back all of this debt. So not only did, did she really ruin him emotionally, but she really sent a lightning bolt right through 
uh, his bank account, and that lasted for a long, long time. And I remember something that I'll tell you that I, that I remembered pretty only recently. I, when I was a child, when my mother left, she used to come back um, sometimes to see us off from school. And this was right at the beginning. This was right at the beginning of the severance of, of their marriage. She, she would come back, and I think she was living in an apartment nearby, and she kept this apartment for the sake of appearances, and so it didn't seem as if she had run off to New York so callously and so uh, scandalously. Um, and so she would come by every now and again and see us off to school. And, of course, my father was gone because he left for work very, very early. And one day, while the divorce proceedings were still underway, I, I searched through her bag, and in her bag I found this handwritten note, and it was a note from my mother that she was writing to her lover. And in this note, it talked all about uh, their affair and and the love that she had for him and looking forward to being free completely so they could be together. And I read this note, and I, I, I put it back in the bag, and, and I never said anything about it to anybody. And it was only recently that I realized that if I had, if I had taken that note and I had shown it to my dad or shown it to somebody, it would have completely altered the economics of the divorce. It would have oh, saved right. my father. Right. It would have saved him years and years of suffering oh. financially because, of course, she wouldn't have been able to demand any money if, if, if this had been known. And it would have been proof of adultery, right? Is that, that's right. Yeah. That's oh right. God. So, okay, so this, this is a, a big blow to a child. I mean, 10 years old, that's a tough age for, to lose a parent you know, in any capacity. Um, and to, to see it happen like that and to be conscious of it had to be really difficult on your – you know, you and, and like, as you said, your family and your father, but, um, you know, did, did you, uh, I mean, did, did you ever spend time with her or reconcile or reconnect or is it just kind of, was that kind of the rupture and that was it? It wasn't, it wasn't the rupture and that was it. We reconciled and then were estranged and then were reconciled and then were estranged and it went on like that for years and years. She would float in and out of our lives and would be in for weeks or months, sometimes years, and then would be out for weeks or months or sometimes years. She ended up marrying this, this gentleman and, um, and kept a house in, in New Jersey, <clears throat> and we would visit her there sometimes. But it was mostly just my brother and my sister and my dad and me and my father's entire family my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles, all of whom rushed in like superheroes to raise us and to help relieve the tremendous burden on my father. And it was tremendous, as I say, not just emotionally, but, but financially. This was a time in the mid to late 80s where the building market in New Jersey specifically was particularly awful, and my father was having a really hard time making money. And without my grandmother and, and my grandfather and my father's family, as stereotypical an Italian-American family as you can get, I'm not sure how we would have uh, made it. I'm not sure how my father would have, would have made it. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you hear a lot about how important family is for uh, Italian-Americans. And I've, that's always bothered me because I don't think I've ever met an ethnicity for whom family is not important. That's true, right? Yeah, but I never, I never under, so I never understood that. But of course, I grew up in a town 
mainly uh, Italian Roman Catholic. And of course, all we talked about were Roman Catholic Italians. And so this was the myth that, that Italian Americans and especially Catholics were um, all about family. But I've since learned that that was our own little fiction because uh, it wasn't just us. I mean, I mean, every ethnicity that I've ever met has has relied on family and has valued family in a way that is really exceptional. I mean, uh, it, it's a real spiritual um, connection, I think. And I'm finding this out now with 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 Asians because my my wife is Chinese and and her uh, her uh, family is. Uh, from Taiwan and um, have married Filipinos and Koreans and, and so forth and so it's a it, it, it's a big mixed Asian family and uh, you see the same thing you see family as as being the the, the, the paragon of, um, of of the way um, loyalty and devotion and dedication um, the, the way that, that, that those should be and the way, the way they should be enacted and, and lived and um, but I, I saw that very much fir- firsthand. But sure. you know, but you know, I was getting to the bodybuilding. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that. So then, like, you're going through all this as you, be- as you, just as you kind of turn the corner into adolescence, and then, um, you know, you had a girlfriend in high school that she broke your heart, and then you started lifting. Is that what happened? So one day, when I was at my grandmother's house waiting for dinner, my grandmother cooked dinner for us every night. And at the end of the workday, my father would not go home to our house, but he would come to my grandmother's house. And this is where we all were, my brother, my sister, and myself. And my uncle, my father's younger brother, lived across the street from my grandmother. And my, this uncle had been into weightlifting, into bodybuilding, and into karate and other masculine endeavors. And I knew he had a, a a gym set up in his basement and a pretty sophisticated gym. I mean, these were Olympic grade weights and machines. It was pretty high tech and pretty elaborate for a small basement. And one day I just walked downstairs into his basement where he was training and I picked up weights. And that was the first day of a three year excursion. Um, It started there with my uncle and it then it then became quite quite elaborate after that. Did you did you compete? Like, were you posing and grease like oiling up and everything? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I I did that. I did that twice. Now, so it began as as weightlifting. It began as simply wanting to get bigger and wanting to get stronger. And why does one do this? I mean, let's be honest. I was trying to win back the affections of this of this girl who had rejected me, and um. And so that eventually worked. By the way, six months later, uh, this this the girlfriend, in fact, wanted wanted me back. Really? <laughs> so she liked yeah, the muscles. She liked. She it. did. Okay. She so- did. Well, I had a, I, I had underwent a complete transformation, Brad. I mean, I was a I was a skinny, pimply kid, and I started training in the month of May. And when I went back to school in September. I mean, I was 45 pounds heavier. I mean, people just didn't recognize me. It, it was a transformation that um, that I have never quite experienced since then. And the greatest compliment of my life, still to this day, the greatest compliment I can ever remember getting came from Mr. Roba. Mr. Roba was a Marine, and he was my math teacher. Or he was an ex-Marine, but he was my math teacher in high school. And he was a big, burly, masculine guy. And the last time he had seen me, I was... 
and skinny and weak and heartbroken. And now he had seen me walking. He saw me walking down the hall, and and I'll never forget what he said. He 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 stopped and he stood in front of me. He said, "It looks good on you, kid." Wow. And uh, <laughs> I said, "Thanks, Mr. Roba." And that that you know, I've never forgotten that that compliment. You know, it looks good on you, kid. And um, but. You know, I had a bit of a problem, Brad, because I was living this double life. Um, I was I was reading and I was beginning to write, and that didn't mesh very well in the world that I was in. I was I was in a in a very esoteric, very underground, almost outlaw world of bodybuilders. Um, this was a world of of drugs and a world of of um, clandestine methods, a world of hell bent programs of diet and of training yeah let me let me ask you about that because you know not everybody has the like i I look at like somebody like arnold schwarzenegger in his youth and i'm like my god you know he just had the body and his genetics like you know allowed him to um to like rapidly muscle up (laughs) if that's a term and and you know not i don't think i could do that like can anybody do it with the right combination of diet and drugs or do you have to have some genetic predisposition for, you know, having a, a strong response to, like, weight training and protein powders or whatever? You do. You do. And, and that, that's, that's one of the, the myths, I think, is that anybody, anybody can do it. Um, and when you look at a professional bodybuilder, you think, oh, that's all drugs. But it's, but it's not all drugs. Uh, it's, um, if the genetic foundation is not there, it will, never, it will never work. I had some of it. I didn't have a lot of it. And Did you, I had was your was your uncle like coaching you? Was he helping? Yeah. You? Okay. He was. He was. Everything I learned about weight training, about how to get big and how to get strong, I learned from my uncle. But weight, but being a weight lifter is quite different from being a bodybuilder. Bodybuilding is not about size and it's not about strength. It's about aesthetics. It's about shape and the presentation of that of that shape. And what I came to realize, uh, I wrote a I wrote a profile recently for Grantland. Um, you know the ESPN website. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it was about Phil Heath, who's the who's the number one bodybuilder in the world. He's Mr. Olympia. And this piece was originally uh, done for GQ magazine, and they ended up killing the piece. Um, but I mentioned that because they had a lot of money uh, to spend on this piece, and they sent me out to Denver to to spend a week with Phil Heath, and then they sent me to Las Vegas a month later to to witness the Mr. Olympia competition. Um, and so I got a really inside look at uh, what what it takes. And this guy is just absolutely amazing. His name is Phil Heath, and he is a genetic anomaly. I mean, the guy looks like a superhero. You can say all these bodybuilders look, a sa- look the same, but, but they don't. Phil Heath is absolutely, absolutely unique um, in the history of man. I mean, no, no one in the history of humankind has ever looked like this man before. <laughs> he's absolutely stunning. He is so aesthetically pleasing. He's so beautiful to look at. It's, it's, quite, it's quite miraculous. I mean, looking at him, I often feel as if I'm looking at the Parthenon or something. I often feel as if I'm looking at a, a ballet unfolding before me. I mean, he's so round. He's so rotund and his <laughs> joints are so tiny yeah. that it gives him this 3D appearance. And so Stan Lee couldn't draw a, a superhero this well. I mean, he, he's 
he's absolutely phenomenal. Is he juicing? Um, Is he on something? Is he on the junk? Well, we didn't talk about that, and uh, that was one of the. I think it was one of the reasons GQ didn't like the peas. I, I, I think they were hoping for more of an expose, and I wasn't willing to to do that. I, I didn't want to go down that route and to tarnish this. The guy could this, cr- the guy could crush you. Could <laughs> crush you. Well, I was I. I think what they didn't realize when they hired me to do this piece was the tremendous amount of respect that I have for. A, cha- a champion, and it's a, a champion of, of any kind, really. The, the thing I most admire about Phil Heath is that you can say of him, he is the best in the world. I, and and I, I'm down with that, too, but as long as, like, then it comes the question of, like, are they cheating? You know, because it's one thing to be that, like, uh, perfect aesthetically by working at it, but if it's just a matter of, like, drug combos, you know, then I'm less that- impressed. Yes, well, you know, that's the thing, is that it's not just a matter of, of drug combos. Um, you can take the average person and give him the best drugs in the world, and without the underlying genetics and without the, the will of a champion, really. I mean, the, right. the kind of dedication and the kind of discipline that these guys enact in order to look like this rivals that of any Olympian skier or swimmer or boxer. I mean, these guys are true uh, warriors it's it, to see what phil heath goes through to look like this what does he in do addition, just, like his, well, his diet has got to be insane insanely the diet it's religious i mean the, the dedication to diet and the dedication to training is um, absolutely elite it, it's just as elite as it gets in terms of um, training and in terms of of discipline um and i think this is something that's that's misunderstood that that all one needs to do to look like Phil Heath is to have the best drugs available. Um, but that's erroneous. It, 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 the dedication, the resolve, the lifestyle, the, the, um, the mental strength, the emotional strength, you can imagine the toll this takes on, on the family. Um, it, it's uh, truly, truly impressive. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to see him as a, as a work of beauty, most people are disgusted, but um, I, I can't uh, I, I can't uh, jive with that. I, I find him to be a, a real uh, specimen of beauty. It's um, you should you should look you should Google him, Phil Heath. He's no, I'm gonna, I'll check out the piece when we're done. But um, I'm curious about like to to learn more about like the the two years you did it and like how did it end? It ended when I could no longer reconcile reading Goethe and reading John Donne and, and writing stories and writing essays with being a bodybuilder. I just, I just saw myself in the mirror one day holding a copy of the Iliad and I was all (laughs) muscular and, and it just looked ridiculous to me. I mean, I, I just could no longer reconcile those two disparate worldviews and they are two very different worldviews. Well, you can say, well, that copy of the Iliad that you're holding, you know, if it's an illustrated copy of the Iliad, I bet you there are some drawings of Achilles and of Ajax and of Hector that probably look a lot like you looked at that time. And that's probably true. You know, for the Greeks, one's exterior was an embodiment or was an, a manifestation of one's interior. And so if one was honorable and one was brave 
and one had resolve and one was a terrific warrior. One looked like Phil Heath. It's why, it's why you, to see those, those representations of Ajax or of Hercules or of Atlas, it's why they look so physically superior sure. because that, that was an indication of their moral superiority, of their intellectual superiority, and of their resolve, of their will. But Christianity did away with that. Uh, Christianity then said, no, no, this, the ex- exterior does not matter. It's the interior that matters. It's the soul. And actually, the more pathetic and the weaker the exterior, then the greater the interior, because the, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Uh, and so I don't know to what degree having been bamboozled by Catholicism and having had the abracadabra of Christianity sprinkled over me as a child began to infect me in a very anti-Greek way. But I just could not reconcile it anymore. I couldn't. And I also got tired of hiding my copy of Goethe at the gym because when we would sit, when we would sit on the exercise bikes, we, a lot of our working out was, was aerobic, um, was, was cardiovascular is what I mean. So in order to prepare for a contest, you first got really big and then you shrunk down and got really hard, right? And part of that, part of that deteriorating, so to speak, was a, a cardiovascular routine that involved being on the treadmill and, and being, uh, and, um, being on the stationary bike. Well, other guys that I'm competing against and competing with, my teammates and my, my fellow gym rats were reading copies of Muscular Development or Flex magazine. And I had a, I remember having a copy of Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. And I remember having that inside a copy of Flex magazine, right? So I'm sitting on a stationary bike and everyone thinks I'm reading Flex magazine, but I have a copy of Goethe inside. Uh, <laughs> And so I was, I was ashamed of this. I, this did not seem to me to mesh or to jive with my environment and with these other men, um, the esteem of whom I was trying to secure. So wait, but you uh, must have been getting a pretty good education if you were reading this stuff. Or was this self-directed learning? Like, were you that kind of reader? Or did you have a good English teacher or go to, like, a really good school? Both, I think. I had a great, I had, I, I came, I had a great high school. And I had a great English teacher named Mrs. Gray, and it was she who turned me on to Kurt Vonnegut and to and to Ernest Hemingway and to Twain and Salinger and Gatsby, all of the, the, the typical high school fare of literature. Um, but she was very good at it. I think prior to that, though, I, I had a, a gay uncle from my mother's side of the family. Um, who was a school superintendent, and he would take me to the library when I was a child, and it was he who first introduced me to um, Homer and to Aeschylus and to Ovid and to Virgil. Um, now, I was pretty young. I was 10 or 11 years old, and I'm reading these things in translations, and I remember that he managed to get a hold for me. He, he managed to get a hold of um, ch- children's versions or, 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 let's say, adolescent versions of of the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were um, not not full editions and were amply illustrated. And I, I can't remember now which translation it was, it, the Lattimore translation or the Fitzgerald translation um, or the Chapman translation, the famous Chapman translation. I, um, I know it wasn't the Fagel's translation. The, the famous Fagel's translation of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey didn't, didn't come out until I was much older. But, but I think it was he who who 
brought me to the Manville Public Library and, and was giving me these these books to read and, and sensed that I had this interest in me and that it was going to be very important uh, for me. And I don't know whether because he was an outsider that he recognized another outsider. Um, you know, certainly living in our town at this time, if you were gay, you were definitely in the closet. And, and if not, then you were ostracized. You were certainly on the periphery of the town of Manville. And so I don't remember him being out at all. And, and I also don't remember him having any partner at the time. I mean, it, but it was pretty clear what was going on. It was just unspoken. And since this was on my mother's side of the family, it was okay because, well, we were we were Giraldis. We weren't Shulaks. We were Giraldis. And so the Shulaks were their own thing right. on the other side of town. Um, but I remember he, he introduced me to the Greek pantheon of gods, and I can remember him teaching me about Pan and and uh, Aphrodite, and I remember being absolutely entranced by, by these stories. And so whether or not that came into play when I was 19 years old and decided to leave the world of bodybuilding, I mean, it was a sensible thing to do, Brad. Let's be honest. There was no way I was ever going to be able to maintain this lifestyle. Very, very few people can maintain the lifestyle of a bodybuilder. It, it is an extraordinarily difficult lifestyle to live. The diet is extremely dangerous because it's very, very high in protein. The drug content, the drug cocktail <clears throat> is very dangerous. And um, I never had what it took. I never had the genetics, and I never had the will to do it. I fell into this, and I quite liked the way women responded, and this is why I stayed in it, because I stayed in it for the girls, man. Do you still lift? No, no, God, no. Okay, I didn't know. Like, you just, like, every once in a while picked up a dump. No, no, that, but you know, the thing is, Brad, is that when you're ensconced in this world, as I was, there's no going back halfway or quarter way. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know how to do that. Yeah, you're, you're, either, you're either all in or you're all out. I'm all in or I'm, I'm all out. And uh, so, I, uh, Okay, so yeah. where did you go? You finished the bodybuilding and then you go off to college? I didn't. I, I moved to South Carolina because I, at the time, was so heavily into Faulkner and to Flannery O'Connor and, and Walker Percy that I had this idea that if I moved to the South that it would make me a writer. And so I moved to South Carolina, not far from Myrtle Beach, and... And uh, lived a couple of years down there and, and began writing uh, stories and novels and and uh, wanted to think of myself as a southern writer, which was which was you know absolutely preposterous. It's amazing, uh, it's amazing how many writers do that at some point, or usually earlier in their careers, where they they like change their geography, thinking that it's yeah. somehow going to be the, like the magical elixir. That's right. That's right. Well, that's exactly what happened to me, and how foolish, right? I mean, what a fatuous thing to do. I don't regret doing it because I, I had a fantastic time in South Carolina and I, I met some important people and, and had some wonderful years, but I didn't write any better or any different from the way I would have written if I had stayed in New Jersey. Uh, I just was pretty desperate, I think, at 19 years old. I was suffering a pretty cataclysmic depression at the time, um, a melancholy that that walloped me after the breakup of, a, of, a, of a, an important relationship for me. I had a, a girlfriend of two years, and she went off to Rutgers, and and um, 
and dropped me pretty quickly, and I was devastated by for, this. For I, a bodybuilder? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, you know, I don't know. Who, I don't know if it was for somebody else. It probably was, or maybe it was for a lot of different people. Uh, but I, I was heart wrecked by this, and um, and wanted to get out of town, and uh, and so left for South Carolina. I, 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 I just left, and. Um, as I say, I was so heavily into Faulkner and to Flannery O'Connor at that time, um, but but not just them. Also, also Alan Tate and and uh, 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 and uh, Warren, Robert Penn Warren, and and the great um, uh, you know ag- agrarians. I was beginning to read literary criticism at this time, and, and was very much into Robert Penn Warren and 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 Alan Tate and and their idea of of literature. And and Faulkner had a had a um, a mesmerizing um, effect on me. I could not believe that man's sentences. I could not believe that man's stories. I, I could not believe that it was possible that you could write in that way. I was I was consummately um, uh, changed by that. And of course, Flannery O'Connor, who uh, astonished my teenage sensibility and astonishes me still. Um, Eudora Welty as well, and and the the beautiful beautiful story writer named Peter Taylor, who isn't as well known as he should be, but he's such a beautiful. He's a Tennessean, and such so a you, beautiful. So you got story. you got way way into the South. I mean, the South was it for you. That was like the uh, the the land of your imagination. It really was, and I and I think the reason for that, Brad, might be that I my environment in New Jersey, this provincial working class. Springsteenian town of mechanics and wrestlers and carpenters just wasn't doing it for my imagination. I think my imagination felt somehow impoverished there. And I think that's wrong now. I think that it it need not have been that way. But look, when you're 19 years old, you're looking for anything that, that is looking for you. And you're looking for anything that will take you. And the South, the, the Southern literature seemed to have accepted me. It seemed to have chosen me. And what is so much Southern literature about, really? I mean, it's about being the outsider. It's about being the defeated. It's about being the ostracized and the misunderstood. But it's also about being the haunted and the lyrical. And the, the cataclysmic envision. I mean, I mean, there, there, there are visions in Faulkner that are pure cataclysm. Um, and it's the same thing in, in O'Connor. I mean, her medieval imagination, her medieval conception of the cosmos is absolutely extraordinary. And I was I, not finding that in the songs of Bruce Springsteen uh, when I was 19 years old. I find that in Springsteen now. And, and as a Jersey boy, I, I should have been on to Springsteen a lot sooner um, than recently. Um, and I, I feel a little bit bad about that. Uh, That's all right. You know, I, you know, I, I feel like uh, when there's like a, a patron saint of the music scene and you're in the place that you grow up, there's always sort of like a tempered relationship with that person when you're a kid. You, you can't trust them. <laughs> yeah. Why did you have that too? Well, I mean, not not quite to the same degree, but I grew up in Indiana and there was like the Melon Camp thing, and like it was sort of it was sort of a joke, but we sort of really loved it, and you know, it's like that kind of thing. You have like that musician who sort of uh, is emblematic of the place. So was James Dean a big mythos for you when you were growing up? Not at all. Not at all. Not- I, mean, I didn't give a shit about James Dean. But I later came to really love uh, like Rebel Without a Cause. I really liked that movie. 
Uh, yeah. But like, not like I don't fetishize him or any of that kind of thing. Uh, I think. It was, well, you know, he was he was from Indiana, though, Brad. Is that yeah, right? Not- yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. It was I think I, I think you know, for me in Indiana, it was like Axl Rose. Um, David Letter- David Letterman really was the the big one for me, and then you know Michael Jackson, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, just made me like okay, yeah, this place is weird. And then you know Axl right. Rose made me feel like yeah, my angst is justified, you know, right. or whatever. So you you I think everybody, uh, every state, you know, produces its uh, its cultural figures, and you sort of use them to make sense of yourself somehow. But you're right about that. You're right about that. And for us, it was. It was Springsteen, but you know, I also had Walt Whitman, and I, I didn't really fully appreciate that at the time. That Whitman was a Jersey boy, and I, I was late with Whitman. You know, I was probably in my mid twenties before Whitman cast his spell on me, and I felt I felt uh, terrible about that too because I, I think I could have used him much earlier. Uh, he, he would have been a solace to me a real balm to a lot of the suffering that, that I was going through um, if I had found Whitman earlier. And so that's one of my, one of my regrets. Um, I've got, a, I've got a lot of, I've got a long list of regrets. And so yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a feeling, you know, the longer you live, the more, re- more regrets you, you acquire. And, and, you know, now with kids, I mean, you know, I know your son is, is four and daughter. my, I have a daughter. your daughter is four. I'm sorry. My, my sons are, five and two and and god as a parent as a father you just you accumulate daily regrets you know you just can't do it all you know like whether it's parenthood or trying to read everything or trying to do your work you know you just can't and so it can give you the sense or at least it can give me the sense sometimes that like it's all sliding by oh my god where did the the time's going i'm conscious of the time going i'm fucking this up you know i don't get it back and and you just have to find a way to make peace with that um, but also to pay heed to it, you know, try to make the most of your time in a real way so that you don't have regrets and it's not easy. Well, let me ask you a question. Since you have a daughter yeah. right now, you are her hero. I mean, she is daddy's girl right now, right? Yes. yes. To, I mean, and, and, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I so. Well, you know, you know, I see this cause I don't have that with my sons for both of my boys. I don't think that they're old enough for daddy to be a hero yet. You know, they're both very, very much into mommy and mommy is the boss and mommy is the powerhouse and <clears throat> what mommy says goes. And I'm kind of just the border who ends up you know, making all the money and making all of that possible. And, and I see, I see fathers who have girls who are four and, and five years old. And I see how the girls look at, at their fathers. They, they look at their fathers with this worshipful look. And I say, ah, God, I should have had girls. It's, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty good. I love, I mean, I love having a daughter. I don't, I'm sure I would love having a son too. I just, this is what I've, what I've been going through and it's been, uh, it's been great, but you know everything flips around, and you'll have your moments. I think you'll have your moments. <laughs> okay, Eventually. I'm still wet. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing: little, little boys love their moms. Little girls, I think, have an easier relationship with their dads. Generally speaking, it's always yeah. like, you know there's always like a little bit more contentiousness, and um, but it doesn't have to be that way. I know plenty of, of guys who's you know have great relationships with their dads, and they're super close, and you know it just kind of depend, yeah. depends on how you execute. And and what the and, gen, and what the genetic lottery says, you know. That's right. And and Brad, I have to tell you that you know, we uh, this revol- th- this role right might be reversed because when your daughter's a teenager, 
I think I might have it easier then. I think yes. I, I think teenage boys are easier than, than teenage girls. Now, I hope that doesn't sound like a crass stereotype, but I have friends with teenage girls right now who are being absolutely tortured uh, <laughs> right. and, and friends with teenage boys who, who are actually having a, a gentler time of it all. And, uh, and, so, and so that's, that's not a scientific ob- observation or anything. It's uh, purely, purely emotional and, and probably fatuous, but well, but we'll now, see. I've, I've, I've kind of had that same thought and I'm sort of girding myself for it. We'll just have to see, I, you know, I've, you hear stories and What's weird, what's, weird for me about, what's weird for me about parenthood is how little I know about everything except, like, where I am right now with my kid. Like, it's hard for me to even imagine her at 12. And I, I just feel like every step of the way you learn, and just when you start to get the hang of, like, you know, three, she turns four, and then it's, like, a new set of stuff. And um, I'm, always looking at, right. I'm always looking at other people's kids, like, how old is this kid? Okay, so this is six? This is what six looks like? Right. <laughs> Right, trying to study up, but it's just—it's a very consuming thing. So you wind up kind of, I think, fixed at wherever you happen to be with your own children. Well, I think that's true, and I've certainly experienced that. But I'll tell you the thing that that I've experienced most. You know, we were talking a minute ago about regrets, and and what I feel a lot is not necessarily regret, but I feel guilt, and I feel guilt that. I mean, tell me if you've experienced anything like this. I don't. I'm working too much, and I. The problem is, is that I work from home, and with these books and with these essays, and I would much rather be with them. And it, that's really hard. And and people have said, well, why don't you work outside of the house because the temptation wouldn't be so great? Well, I've tried to work outside of the house, and I can't do it. I've got my library, and it's where I work. And you know, my kids are are hurricaning through the next room, and and. Um, you know, they're like they're like living with two little tsunamis. These kids, and they're out. They're absolutely unignorable. And uh, because writing for me is so onerous, and because it's, it's so hard, because I believe that if that it needs to be done at a certain pitch, at a certain register, with a certain tenor, and if it's not done with that level of intensity, then it's not worth doing. That's great, except that it makes writing very onerous. It makes it very hard for me, and I don't enjoy it all that much. I'd much rather be with with my kids and and uh, you know just wrestling around with them. But uh, you got to you got to pay the bills, right? Yeah, it seems that way, and I <clears throat> yeah, it seems that way. I mean, you know, with this latest novel, with Hold the Dark, I I I mean, it's, the book took me three years to write, and it's only it's only two hundred pages, and it was a real slog. And I wouldn't have even written a book if I hadn't had a contract to write it. And if I if I didn't need the money from that contract and didn't have my my wife constantly saying, "Are you gonna get the check? Or are you are you, are you gonna get us the money?" So I'm glad I wrote I'm glad I wrote the book. Um, but it was really hard to write. And <clears throat> it's your second book. Yeah, Hold the Dark is is my second book. It just came out in September, and my first one was called Busy Monsters, and that was a novel too, and that came out in in 2011. But, you know, Busy Monsters was easier to write because it was a comedy, and it was this exuberant, rollicking romp and, and that was very disobedient and and as about as much fun as I'm capable of having at a keyboard. And it, I also wrote it before I had kids, and so I, that was an entirely different experience. But, you know, Hold the Dark, I had both my kids and and all of the pressures that come with that, not just financial, uh, Brad, either. I mean, 
the emotional pressures and the psychological pressures and and you know, I don't think I was prepared for that. I mean, people say that parenthood changes you, and that's a bit of a platitude, and I'm always very cautious of these platitudes. And uh, But I really wasn't prepared for the force of that platitude. I mean, it, it, it changes it's, you. It's real. What, it's a real thing. <laughs> it's real. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, sure. It's like... <laughs> It's just, I mean, if, if anything is going to change a person and if anything is worthy of platitudes, I think it's that. I mean, childbirth and suddenly you're responsible for another, you know, this person that you've created with your body and it's, uh, you know, comes out of another body that, you know, it's bananas. And, uh, yeah, it's the, you know, it's the best thing I've, I think, you know, everyone always says it's the best thing I've ever done. It really is though. <laughs> you know, like it, you can't beat it. You can't beat it. And, and it comes with a lot of difficulty and, um, challenges, but the, the good stuff obviously, um, at least for me, uh, weighs the bad by a long shot. I agree. I agree. You know, someone asked me, I did an interview somewhere recently and someone asked me, someone was talking about my word choices and, and was impressed that I had used the word, uh, Raven as a, as a verb and was, was talking about my verbs and, and my, my you word mean, choice. You mean like Raven, like the bird, or you mean like R A V I N apostrophe? <laughs> so, so R. <are>, yeah, <laughs> that's good. No, Ra- Raven is a is a bird as a noun, but it's it's also it's also a verb. It also can mean to to roam in a in a hungry way. And and this interviewer was really like that word and was was going through some of my pieces and looking at word choices, and then had asked me what my favorite word was, right, in the context of, of this conversation where where he's looking at my word choices in, in different pieces and in, in Hold the Dark. And and um, I think I surprised him a little bit because I, I said, my favorite word is daddy. And he said, no, 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 really, what's your favorite word? I said, no, really, my favorite word is daddy. That That is the best word I've ever heard. I mean, when I, when I come in to the house after a day of teaching or, or being away. And, and, you know, those are the first, that those, that's the first word I hear. And, and it comes simultaneously from, from both Ethan and from Aiden. And man, that is my favorite word. I mean, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah, pretty good. But, but, uh, this person didn't have kids. And so it wasn't, I mean, this guy was a, you know, he was a word guy and wanted to talk about, uh, I don't know what, what, what he thought I was going to say. You know, my, my favorite word was, was <laughs> something, uh, something out, outrageous and esoteric, but, um, but, uh, I, I don't think he was quite prepared for the, the simplicity of the word daddy. Uh, but I, I love it. Yeah, no, it was funny. My, <clears throat> you know, whenever anybody asks you your favorite something, I find that those questions tend to make me freeze up. It's hard to think on the spot. Right. Um, and my wife was telling me a funny story about one of her friends who was talking, you know, we live in Los Angeles, so of course it's film business stuff. And she was talking to some film director and he like about a job and he asked her about, uh, like on the spot, he's like, what's your favorite film? And I think, you know, she's got young kids and she, she just blurted out Annie. (laughs) 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 I think like she thought she totally fucked it up, but I think it might've had the odd effect of being like subversive somehow because it was just such an oddball thing to say. You know, I I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. And she had probably just watched Annie a hundred times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On some sort of crazy (laughs) loop, you know, so (laughs) So, I uh, I want to ask you though. I do. I, I want to make sure we get to this because we, you know, we had you in South Carolina, and then we got to your two books. Um, yeah. You know, can you like briefly like summarize like how you got there? Like, did you event? I mean, you're teaching, so I'm imagining you eventually went to college, or no? I did. I, I moved back from some South Carolina and 
went from actually I went from South Carolina to Boston and I wasn't in college yet I um, had taken a class at at Harvard summer school where anybody can enroll uh, for a summer class and I had taken a writing class there in the summer of 1995 and this was my first exposure to Boston uh, it was Cambridge technically Harvard's in Cambridge but <clears throat> uh, Cambridge is as much a part of the Boston ethos as as Arlington or <clears throat> or uh, Charlestown or what have you, but but I came here in 95, and I stayed for a year or two, and then I moved back to New Jersey to go to college, and I went to a small private school in New Jersey called Drew, Drew University, and and it was there that I studied theology and, and theater and English, and had some great years there, and and then moved out to Boulder, Colorado. I I'd moved out to Boulder, Colorado because the woman that I was in love with at the time and, and the woman that I planned to spend uh, eternity with, I, I'm, I'm such a romantic, um, Brad, I, I think in terms of eternity. Uh, <laughs> she was from Boulder, Colorado, and and we moved out there. And I'll tell you that not a day goes by that I don't think about Boulder, Colorado because... That's where, that's where I went to. I went to college there, so I lived there for. You, a, you went to UC Boulder, I did. man. It's a, man, it's a beautiful you know, town. <laughs> it's pretty nice, man. I'm thinking, why do you and I get along so well? And that's it. <laughs> that's it. It's Boulder. It's, it's Boulder. Uh, it's so got, it's got to be like. I mean, I think Santa Barbara. Though Santa Barbara is a little. It's bigger. Boulder's like the nicest town in America. Like you just can't beat it in terms of like beauty and ease and uh, things. To do. So look, so look. Don't let's not tell too many people that because. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do not want an influx of immigrants, you know, American immigrants from Indiana yeah. and New Jersey, you know, all <laughs> of them immigrating. too late. I feel like the word is out, you know. Yeah, it might be too late. The last thing we need is, a, is an immigration of New, of New Jerseyans going to, <laughs> going to Boulder, Colorado. But I was there for two years, and it happened to be that my brother was there as well. My brother had once gone to Boulder on a snowboarding trip and told us he'd be back after the weekend and, and never came back, ever. <laughs> uh, and... You know, I was in love with this woman, and I was feeling byronic and and uh, just about as romantic as as you can get. And followed her out to Boulder, and lived there for two years. And then um, and then I was accepted to graduate school at Boston University, and that's how I made it back to Boston um, in the early aughts. And uh, and I've been here ever since. Uh, ever since oh. oh Oh, two, I guess. Um, so except for that brief sojourn in 95, 96. Um, I was there. I, we could have crossed paths. I'm sure we did at some point. <laughs> you were here? I, I was in Boulder in 95 and 96. No, so I was in Boston in 95 and 96. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Right? So I was in Boston in 95 and 96. I didn't go to Boulder until 2000. Uh, right? I got to, or, or, or I guess 2001. I got to Boulder right before 9-11. Okay, that's just when and, I left. So you were gone, okay? Yeah. So then, then, I, then I had spent two years in Boulder, and I, I came to, and then I came to Boston in um, at the end of '02. Yeah. So I've been in Boston since '02. Yeah. All right. Well, and now you've got these two books out, and I, I don't want to let you go without talking about, uh, you know, Hold the Dark, the new one uh, rolling out into the world. Um, and I, I'm wondering because uh, you know you made news with the uh, Alex Olean. Is it Alex Olean? I think that's how you pronounce it. I had her on the show, and. Um, you know, you did a review of her book uh, a couple of years ago that got a lot yeah. of press for its negativity. 
Um, yeah. You know, and you so you kind of hold. I mean, I've I read follow up, you know, interviews and and whatnot with you in the wake of that, and you sort of held firm. You know, you didn't back down from what you said. Right. Um, and it was a really, really negative review. You didn't. You spared nothing. I mean, you you did not like her writing, and you said so explicitly um, with, right. with force. And yeah. I'm curious to know, like, if the aftermath of that uh, had any kind of impact on you or moved the needle for you, if you ever had any regrets on it. And then, um, you know, I think as like a, a secondary question related to that would be like, withhold the dark rolling out. Was there any fear in you that there would be like some sort of reprisal? or a, a revenge taken by people right. who didn't like that review? Right. Well, I think any novelist who's also a critic has that fear or concern or or awareness germinating in him at some place, at, at some time. I know Walter Kern says this. Uh, you know, Walter Kern's a, a great novelist, but he's also... A uh, pretty fierce critic, and um, he says this in an interview some, somewhere that that the, the the critic who's a novelist is always, to some degree, aware of reprisal or anticipating retribution. Yeah. Um, I I was anticipating that, um, and I'm 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 shocked that it never came. I'm shocked that it that it didn't happen. <clears throat> I've been so incredibly fortunate in my reviewers for hold the dark um it was unexpected and i couldn't be more um honored really it feels like a tremendous honor to have been given such intelligent critics who understood what the book is trying to do with language and with myth um that's sort of rare i i think um to have um, to be so fortunate in one's in one's critics. Now, whether or not there are hatchet jobs in the making and will appear, um, you know, after I say this tomorrow, maybe <laughs> right. uh, I, I can't say. But um, but do you read them? Do you read them all, like good or bad? <clears throat> well, so my pub my publisher sends them to me, and you know, I'm not on social media at all, and so um, I'm not aware of of what happens on the internet and i'm not on the net all, all that much actually so and my editor and the, the the good people at norton know this and and sent and so they send me reviews and and um they you know they they usually tell me you know this one's bad or this one's good and or or this one's half bad and half good but they they send me the reviews and they've all been They've all been positive, and and not just positive, but exuberant. And I really uh, don't know what to make of that. Uh, I I because as as you say, there is always that that fear of of reprisal. Um, although with me, it wasn't necessarily a, a fear. With me, it's just part of the business. I mean, I I was hoping for. For some negative reviews, actually, because I think that they you know, people enjoy talking about them more than they enjoy talking about the the positive reviews. And so I'm not I'm not bothered by negative reviews. Busy Monsters got hammered in, in a bunch of places. Uh, I think the Boston Globe hammered it. I think uh, the New York Review of Books hammered the novel pretty um, pretty terribly. And but but I, but I didn't mind it at all. I mean, I was I was grateful for the attention, actually. Um, well, sometimes, think, like you say, sometimes like a really negative review can actually be in some ways good for a book, <laughs> at least in terms well, I, of, at least in terms of getting people to know about it. I mean, that's sort of the big battle 
uh, right out of the gates for any author in any book is like just trying to cut through the noise and get people's attention. And, uh, you know, in the case of your review of Alex Olean's books, I mean, I feel like, uh, that put a big light on her in a way, you know, not necessarily flattering from your perspective, or your, your, from the reviews perspective, but it got people talking about her, you know? Yeah, I, I, I suppose that it did. You know, I didn't experience that row as other people experienced it because I believe that it happened mostly among the synthetically social on social media. And, and as I say, I'm not, I'm not on social media. And the only way I knew about the, the row that it had caused was second or third hand. And as I say, my, you know, my, my second son was about six months old at the time. And I really wasn't involved in it all that much. My editor at the Daily Beast asked me to write an essay in response um, to the melee that was caused. And, and I did that. It was sort of my ars poetica, uh, my philosophy of the critic. It, it's called Letter to a Young Critic. And, and I did that because he asked and because we have a good, we have a good relationship. Uh, but that was about the extent of it, and it, it for me, um, writing that piece and, and then just fielding the, the emails from, uh, you know, hundreds of strangers and, and, and others. What were um, those like? Were they mostly angry? Or were they mostly supportive? Or what was the... I didn't, get a sing- I didn't get a single angry email. I didn't, uh, I didn't get a single angry email. Uh, I, the anger wasn't directed at me personally um, in email or in, in person or over the phone or something. It, it was all, <clears throat> I think it was all done uh, in places where I don't look or places that I wouldn't have access to, whether it was Twitter or Facebook or, or these other web- websites or blogs That's or whatever. Where, yeah. That tends to be where like the melee goes down these days. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Well, I, I'm not I'm not party to it, and so as I say, I didn't experience it the way others did. And well, you know, I think like the the a lot of the, I mean, and it, it's not just the case with your you know your review um, of Alex Olean. It, it happens like often, and it often happens with male writers, uh, particularly white male writers, uh, criticizing uh, women authors. You yeah. know, and what you see is um, a backlash against it. And, uh, you know, people feeling like uh, the, it, it's not the book that's being criticized. It's actually a review of the person. It's a review of the woman, which feels out of bounds to people. Um, but you, you, I mean, you don't think that that's what you did. You were reviewing the book strictly, which is a, a critical distinction. It's, it's the main distinction. You're right. In the case of my review, charges of sexism were a convenient and cowardly way of changing the subject of not confronting the actual issue, which was that writer's prose and that writer's mind. So no one has ever had to tell me that a writer's genitalia, like a writer's epidermis, has nothing at all to do with the success or failure of her book. But apparently a great many among us need a lesson in that fact. Uh, And you could almost feel the glow of righteousness from from those who had the silliness and the desperation to level charges of sexism against me uh, as if as if 
I don't know the difference between uh, re- reviewing genitalia and reviewing sentences. Uh, no, that does. And- sometimes lesser reviewers do do that, though. I mean, there are. I, I've read reviews where you're like, okay, this person's just critiquing the person. You know, they're really getting. And, and it, you know what? It often happens in the context of memoir or personal essay where the writer is really sharing himself or herself. And so it can get – I think, you know, for, to defend critics a little bit, it can be hard to sort of not, you know, blur that line uh, somewhat. But um, maybe, it's, mem- maybe it's less justified when it comes to fiction, you know. Well, mem- memoir is a, a different case. I, I think you're right. Um, it's hard not to speak about the writer's life. Um, when you're reviewing a memoir, because that's, of course, what it's about. But the success or failure of any book depends on the sentences. And I don't care if that's a a, a novel or a story collection or a a book of history or a memoir. Um, Every book lives or dies by its language. And this is what the critic's focus should be. I think that naughty or nice, is the wrong observation, right, in a review. Um, the, that emphasis on delivery is really a dodge. You should ask yourself instead, true or false, right? And I think that the uproar that followed was focused on the delivery, on my style and on my manner and on my tenor. But, you know, unpopular causes often rely on the aesthetics of delivery. I think because... The, the foes, the foes of unpopular causes, uh, often wear the, the face of a of a gru- gruesome banality. And my the, the critics that that were against me in that uh, situation were gru- gruesomely banal. I mean, they they simply um, didn't have any real notion of the critics' mission. Um, they believe that the critic should be a kind of glorified publicist in a way. Um, and I think that's wrong. It shows a complete ignorance of, of critical tradition, certainly in, in uh, the British 19th century. Um, and I was not about to uh, subordinate my aesthetics or my critical mission to play polite publicist for a book that I didn't believe um, made the cut. And uh, but I also think that that one should wish to be the bet noir of the majority. I mean, I don't mind being detested by by roving mobs of the mediocre. I, I really don't. Or all those bored assassins of social media um, who seem perfectly content to defend as much dross as possible. I think that if if a critic's views meet with disapproval by these people, then they will be met with praise by posterity. And I am kind of, I write with posterity in mind. I mean, Susan Sontag says this. She's got a beautiful line. She says, she says one should write posthumously. And I, I love that. And I love Sontag. I mean, I mean, talk about an American genius. She's she was really important to me and a big a big influence when I was younger. But she's got that beautiful line: "One, one should write posthumously." Um, and I and I love that. Um, and Sontag was certainly someone who never minded meeting with the disapproval of the mediocre. Um, I tell younger critics this all the time. Um, younger critics who feel pressured into being nice when they understand that the book is a failure. 
And I tell them that you must get over your fear of being disliked by a weakling multitude. I, I tell them that their only concern should be earning the respect of those who have earned theirs. And uh, I think that that comes as a, as a bit of, re- of a relief because there are critics. I've met them. I've communicated with them. I've had discussions with them who really do feel uh, bullied into, into supporting inferior works of literature, um, story collections or essay collections or memoirs or novels that have no linguistic power, that have no storytelling punch, that have weak characterization, that are put together very shabbily. And they're afraid to do that. They're afraid of the reprisals that you spoke of. They're afraid of that retribution. And that's an absolute pollution of the critic's mission, of the critic's aesthetics. It's an absolute perversion and pollution of that mission. And, you know, I, it, that was not the only negative review that I had ever written. Um, I, I haven't written a lot. I, I haven't written a lot still to this day, have not written a lot, but, um, I think it was because it was, as you say, uh, a white guy writing about a woman, um, I think that that was what was the bulk of it. And because people were ill-equipped to deal with the ideas, they instead chose to deal with the most facile and ridiculous element that they could clasp onto, that their little minds could, could make sense of. And, of course, that was, that was genitalia. But, um, and that, that's where the true sexism, I think, came into play, were from those defenders of this writer who assumed that because she was a woman, that she wasn't independent enough, or she was somehow too weak to take strong criticism. And so everyone must rush to the, to the defense of this, of this poor young woman who also happens to be um, very beautiful. And so, well, that was an added element to it, was it not? Um, we must defend the honor of this weakling woman. Um, what an insult. What an insult to, to this writer's independence and to her self-esteem and to her own ability to handle harsh criticism. Um, there's no way that it would have caused um, even a fraction of that melee if, if the writer had been uh, a male. And uh, that's where the real sexism is, as I say, is assuming that this writer needed this defense, needed this uproar, needed this response, um, because she wasn't strong enough. Um, that, that's the real insult, and that's the real sexism. Well, I wish you had clear thoughts on this. I just don't feel like you... you... <laughs> And, and I and I and I ask you to kindly never review my podcast on iTunes. Please do not go near. No, no you listen. You you are my favorite. I, I I heard your conversations with Steve Allman. You've done two two or three right now. Uh, two. By now, he's, right? a, he's appeared twice, which is rare. But he's. I mean, Steve is a, a uniquely gifted talker. He's really good on the show. And um, you know, the most recent one we had football to talk about. So that gave us a that gave us an easy hour. Right, right. It, cer- it certainly did. Uh, so, no, not not at all. I uh, I, I stick to uh, I stick to reviewing books, but uh, but you know, I, I reviewed my first movie recently, and over at the um, over at the oh the New Republic, I, I did a piece on um, on Child of God, and the only reason <clears throat> I reviewed this movie is because, of course, I I love the Cormac McCarthy novel Child of God, uh, and and. Boy, that was—I got some angry, some angry emails about that review. Uh, 
Um, apparently, James Franco has a lot of fans. So yeah, oh, sure he does. Of course he does. <laughs> with, with, with that Instagram account, you know, look out. He's got a tribe. I, uh, I know. I know. I, I, lear- I learned that. Uh, but, 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 but that's okay. As I say, I... Um, I, I don't. I don't mind uh, backlash. I, I also think that it's impossible not to receive uh, any backlash anymore from anything at all that you write. I mean, the the interneting world is is a world of backlash. It's a it's a world of of um, of vitriol, and it's a world of backbiting. And uh, I mean, look at any comment section on any after any article. Uh, I mean, they're they're. They're petri dishes of grievance <laughs> and and hostility and and violence and vehemence. I mean, and, and and they also seem to me to be populated by by the unemployed and the insane. I mean, these are. I mean, I, I don't I don't read them anymore. But I stopped. I mean, I, they were just but incredible. I mean, even places such as the LA Review of Books and the New Republic that are, are publishing, you know, high quality content. You know, you have the most the most insane um, commentary in these in these um, comment section, um, the jaundice and the grievance. Um, it's 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 really um, amazing. I don't understand what purpose they can possibly serve those comment section. I think I think some of the venues that they're aided. Um, some venues that are aided by advertising, I think that the manic nuttiness of the comment section, it simply keeps your eyes on the page for that much longer. Maybe right? so, yeah. I mean, and then, people, but, people, but, need a, people need a place to be heard or something. Yeah, I, I think that's it. I think that's it. And so, you know, with everything being on the net now, um, you know, a, a piece that's published in print it eventually finds its way to the net. And... And I, I think that backlash is just, it's, it's inevitable. And, you know, I read a really smart piece by a, um, by a critic who was, who, I, f- I forget where it was, but, but she, was a, um, she was a cultural critic. And it, it, there was a, a, a big backlash online about a photograph that had appeared of a, of a model. And the model looked really famished and emaciated and people were just, up in arms that the company, whatever it was, would employ this model who looked so sick. And, you know, this, this, this critic, you know, came to the defense of the company and to this woman and say, look, this is how she looks. Uh, you know, what, what are you doing here? I mean, and, and then she said that, that this is the world we live in now, that, that if you are going to write something or post something, and she got a lot, of, a lot of heat for that, right? She got a lot of heat for saying, for defending this model and vitriolic, I mean, angry saw stuff. I mean, stuff from, you know, stuff from the movie saw, you know, I mean, just, (laughs) just, just the most disgusting kind of comments. Yeah. And she wrote a response to that saying, look, this is the world that we live in now that if I'm going to express these views on the internet, I can expect this kind of bloody response. Um, I think she was right about, I think she was right about that. I mean, I mean, here she is defending this this other woman. Here's a woman defending a woman, saying, "Look, lay off. You know she doesn't deserve what you're saying about her, right? This is this is a, a you know an up and coming model. She's you know she's trying to earn a living. She's she's doing her thing. This is her body. This is the way she looks. Leave her alone." Um, I think she's right about that. But to, to have been attacked in, in such a callous and bloodthirsty way, I mean, really sanguinary comments. Um, 
it was little, I think it's discussed. A little, it's a little scary too. It's just like you it's, know, there's some freaky, that's right. There's some freaky people out there, but you know the internet gives permission I think to, for people to go to extremes that they they probably hopefully wouldn't go to in in their you know their IRL existence. Right. Well, because it's anonymous and exactly. Uh, that's that's the thing, but um, but you know I I it, it as a critic and as a novelist it's um, those are two hats and for me they're very often one hat but um, I can see how they'd be two and and I don't I don't mind that I mean for me what I what I write critically has. Um, although I might do it in a different style or with a different mission than what I write creatively or imaginatively, um, I, I see them as serving a, a similar purpose. I mean, my my ars poetica or my aesthetic that I promote in my criticism is the same ars poetica or aesthetic that I try to accomplish in my imaginative uh, fiction. And so... Um, um, I, I do see them as as complementary and and not as um, uh, ad- adversarial, but um, but yeah, I, I couldn't be I couldn't be uh, happier and 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 luckier really in my in my critics for for Hold the Dark. Um, so, so one review began: William Giraldi should be cloned, and. <laughs> And my wife, my wife said no. My wife said no, 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 no. One of you is is quite enough. Please, please, no cloning. And and I, I had to say that um, I, I quite I quite agreed with that. Yeah. Well, I uh, I congratulate you on it. It's it, like I have been reading some of the reviews and they've been great. And uh, I wish you continued success with it and and with uh, the criticism that you do and with whatever comes next. And I uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, Brad. It's been great. Thank you for having me. All uh, right, guys, there you go. That's William Giraldi. His novel is called Hold the Dark. It's out there now from Liberate Publishing. You can find William online. His website is wgiraldi.com. Uh, he does not have, as we discussed, a social media presence. He is uh, a man of uh, superior discipline and focus. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go sign up for the TNB Book Club. Get that as a gift. Don't forget to get the Other People app. It's free. And then sign up for Premium, which is not free, but which is very affordable. And uh, support the show. If you want to email me, the address is uh, letters at otherppl.com. I like hearing from you guys. So if you're traveling, safe travels. Happy Thanksgiving. I'll say it again on uh, Wednesday, but, you know, try to stay sane. Listen to some shows. Stay away from the mall if you can. Go see some movies. This is a good time of year for movies, theoretically. I just saw Foxcatcher. That's what I saw recently. And uh, great performances, super fucking depressing. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't need, like, a, a, a further illumination of the idea that the American dream is uh, diseased in a serious way. You know? I, didn't, I did not need that underscored for me. But if you do, if you're not, you know, if you're not clear on that yet, go see Foxcatcher. 
or you know great performances and maybe it was just my mood i don't know if i can handle the darkness like that level of darkness maybe i bring too much darkness to the theater and then uh you know it just compounds to a degree that makes me uncomfortable i don't know just seemed bleak so bleak plus mark ruffalo uh you know spoiler alert turn it off if you don't want to hear mark ruffalo gets shot in the movie killed any movie where mark ruffalo gets killed that affects me mark ruffalo uh, he's like my wubby. I feel like he's like a big child. That's his effect on screen. He's a big boy. Very appealing and a good actor. Uh, I, I've, I've tweeted about this before. After uh, the movie You Can Count On Me that he did with Laura Linney, the uh, Kenneth Lonergan movie, great movie many years ago. If you haven't seen it, get it, see it. You Can Count On Me, Mark Ruffalo, Laura Linney, Kenneth Lonergan directing and writing. Great movie great performance and uh, that was what kind of sealed my Mark Ruffalo fandom I love that guy please remember that Montaigne did not know how to swim and that Modigliani died of tubercular meningitis that's it for now I think I'm done thanks to William Giraldi uh, go get his book thanks to Live Right Press thanks to you guys for listening I appreciate you listening What would I, where would I be without you on this show? It would be a, p- a pathetic exercise. Maybe I should go to the mall and uh, just interview people. Like man on the street podcasting. Podcasting verite. Like a, a studs uh, turkleian. What's the word for something that's derivative of studs turkle? Studs turkleish? <laughs> I'm very turkleish. I like Studs Terkel. R.I.P. What a cool guy. What a jolly fellow. He wasn't dark. He didn't get dark around the holidays. He enjoyed life. He embraced the holidays. Did he? I don't know. Maybe he was dark. People who are that sunny outwardly in public, usually very dark at home. I'm not sure. But everyone who knew him seems to indicate that he was really that uh, that fun. Not that he didn't have some you know darkness or cynicism, but it didn't overtake him. I need to be more like that. That's the situation over here. I need good role models. I need to pick my heroes wisely. I need to be more Turkish.